0: If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 19. We have been going through a study in Acts. As we look in Acts 19, Paul is in Ephesus. Today we're looking at when the leaves fall. When the leaves fall. I was on the walk with the dogs this morning, as I normally do on Sunday morning, and I ran across these. Anybody know what kind of leaves these are? What's that? Autumn leaves. A botanist just like me. I'm hoping they're not marijuana. (laughs) I know nothing about trees, I just thought they were pretty. Amber, okay. okay. Uh, Do you know why leaves fall? It's their time, it's their season. The biological reason is that we don't have enough sun for, to, for uh, photosynthesis to go on. And so the Lord has created within the tree a little trigger that goes off and actually cuts off the, the uh, supply of nutrients to the tree, the sap to the leaves, as it were, and uh, the, the, the fluids that they need. And so the chlorophyll is trapped. And the chlorophyll, when it gets trapped, turns colors. That's where you get the chlorophyll that is green as it's getting old gets uh, orange or yellow or red, as you see. It becomes beautiful. But it, when I got back from my walk, I realized that this tree is in our backyard. And this time of year, it never sheds a single leaf. It's poison oak. <laughs> Boy, I sure hope that's not true. And I actually went to, uh, to uh, Clayton Alfaro because he's a landscaper. And I asked him about it. This is a beech tree. This is a beech tree. And he said it's a spring shed her. It, it sheds its leaves in the spring and, and I did a little research this week because I didn't know why some leaves fall in the fall and some of them fall in the spring. And the truth is these leaves don't fall until new life comes to push them off. They keep the chlorophyll, they keep trying to do what they can with the meager sun, and they're very susceptible to, to the snow and the things that happen in the snow because of that. But they keep their leaves until new sap rises in the spring and then they begin to fall. So I have leaves in my backyard that fall in the fall and in the spring and in the summer. But whenever new sap rises in this tree and a new growth comes, it sheds its leaves. What's interesting is H.A. Ironside, when he was in the war, was in an area where there were a lot of trees. It must have been the beech tree or magnolia. There's just a few trees that do that. He was in an area, and this is what he wrote one time he said, "I was walking through, and I began to realize that in this it was a spring, and the leaves were falling and they were they were everywhere and He asked a local botanist, a local landscaper. And the man said the sap was beginning to run. The buds were beginning to push from within. From down beneath the dark earth, this man told me, the roots were taking life and sending it along the trunk and the branch and the twig until that life expelled, get this, that life expelled every bit of deadness that remained from the previous year. This is what that great preacher said. He said the expulsive power of new life changes when the leaves fall when the leaves fall away when we see the leaves fall away and sometimes it's because there's no more power but but the power of the holy spirit when it comes into a church Changes that church, and it's not that the the chlorophyll is trapped and we change colors because of that. It's because new life rises within us. The Holy Spirit, God's life, rises within us to the point that we literally push out the old. And that's what we're going to see today. Ephesians 2.10 gives a great description of this. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul later wrote to the Ephesian church and says, don't you understand? We are God's workmanship. God prepared, it, it prepared this in advance and he's going to push with that new life, he's going to push the old life away. Here's where I'm going with this. A church of fire, and that's the, the series title, a church of fire, the church of fire. A church of fire is one where Christ's new life in each believer expels every bit of the old darkness, the old deadness. As we go to Acts chapter 19, three areas here, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, we're going to read a good portion of it. Acts chapter 19, if you have your Bible, I hope you've turned. If not, I hope you have your iPhone on and you can turn it that way. But Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, we're going to look at God's spirit produces mature believers. We know that, but we need to start there. Acts chapter 19, verse 1, while Apollos, we looked at him last week, was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Remember, again, Ephesus, half a million people, third largest city in in the ancient world. Ephesus was huge, third largest city in, in the ancient world, half a million people. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is the Christ, that is in Christ. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues or languages and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all, a dozen men. The Holy Spirit comes on them. There's another instance of the tongues or the languages that come up. This is the last time that terminology is used in the book of Acts. Look at verse 8. Paul entered the sanctuary and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Again, do you understand, over a period of two years, thousands and thousands and thousands of people heard the message. Very simple from, from this point. You see two things. Number one, a believer must believe in Christ. A believer must believe in Christ. In the immortal great words of the orator Homer Simpson, Do you you understand? This seems so obvious. It seems so simple. It seems like everybody should get this, duh. You know, come on. We we should know this, right? It wasn't obvious to these 12 men. They'd been baptized into the baptism of John. It was about repentance. They were feeling sorry for what they've done. John Phillips, uh, a, an author, a Bible scholar, gives us some great insight into what this is all about. Listen to what he says. Paul discovered at once that their knowledge of Christ was deficient. John's baptism pointed forward to one who was coming. Christian baptism points back to the one who has come. John's baptism was linked to repentance. I'm repentant, therefore I submit to baptism. It's the public expression of a personal expectation that Christ is coming at some point. Christian baptism is linked to regeneration, not just repentance, but new life, regeneration. I've been regenerated. I have new life. Therefore, I submit to this baptism. It is the public expression of my personal experience with Christ indwelling me. Moreover, uh, John's water baptism pointed to a promised baptism of the Spirit. It predicted the day of Pentecost. Christian baptism points to a present baptism of the Spirit. It proclaims the day of Pentecost has already come. John's baptism says there's going to be a change in the dispensations. The Holy Spirit is going to come into the world. Christian baptism not only demonstrates that that has happened, it says there's been a change in my disposition. Not just a dispensation, but my dispensation, a disposition, who I am. The Holy Spirit has come into my heart. John's baptism was essentially Jewish in character, scope, and significance. Believer's baptism is essentially Christian in character, scope, and significance. And he finalizes it by saying this A Jew baptized at the urging of John remains a Jew. A believer baptized in the name of Jesus remains a Jew or an American or a German. But he's publicly identified by his baptism with something far greater than nationality. He is identified with Christ. And, and when we see that, we see what happened here, we need to know that because Paul redirects them to trust in Christ. Up to this point, they've trusted in a teacher in John. They've trusted in this repentance. And the reason this is so important, there are a lot of people who will take this and they'll say, see, the Holy Spirit comes in two waves or the Holy Spirit comes in a second wave. You're, you're saved and then later when you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's this second wave and you speak in tongues. But that's not what happened here. They weren't saved. They'd never come to believe in Jesus Christ. They'd come to hope that he would come, but they'd never come to believe in Jesus as their Savior. And when they trusted him, They receive the Holy Spirit. Paul would later write, by the way, if if you wonder, can you be saved and not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Paul later writes in Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. If you're a believer, you have all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. Once we have come to Christ, we have the Holy Spirit indwell us. It's what we do with the Holy Spirit, how much control we allow of the Holy Spirit over our life. It completes the progression. What happened here completes the progression because if you remember on the day of Pentecost, it, it authenticated the message that Jesus had had that the Holy Spirit would come and it was for Jews basically on the day of Pentecost. Then later, if you remember, there's a second time when the, when the Holy Spirit is outpoured again and when, that, when he's poured out on these people, they're speaking of tongues and they're Samaritans. And then there's another time when it's Gentiles, Cornelius and some others, Gentiles, but they're still within the land of Israel. And now, finally, the the final progression is this is a church that's outside of Israel, outside of that holy land, and they see that that the Holy Spirit is the same for all groups, all places, all times. And you say, well, you know, I understand that, but you make such a big deal over this. Why is it such a big deal? Because there are people in America today who say, oh, I believe in God, I'm, I'm a Christian, I believe in God. It's not enough just to believe in God. You have to believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You have to believe that Jesus Christ died in your place, in my place, for everything wrong we've ever done, and you have to accept by faith that payment for you. It's not enough just to believe in God. James 2.19 says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. In fact, the demons believe more about God than most people who say they believe in God. A believer must believe in Christ. Number two, a believer should grow in Christ. Did you notice in verse 9 it says, some became obstinate hard-hearted, skleermal. Sclermo is a, a Greek word that's, that's used uh, when Pharaoh hardened his heart in, in uh, Romans 9, where it's describing Pharaoh and what happened. It said he had a scleromal heart. He had a hard-hearted heart. In Hebrews chapter 3, when it's talking about Israel, and when Israel turned their back on God, it says they had the same hard heart. They became obstinate. obstinate. They were unteachable. So Paul moves from the synagogue, which is what he does every time he goes in. He tries to go to the religious places first, and then he goes out, branches out, and talks to others. This is his usual mode of operation. And he goes to the Hall of Tyrannus. Uh, In our term, and and that's the Greek word for tyrant. By the way, I mean, my mind works this way, and I know it shouldn't. What parent names their child Tyrant? Tyrant, can you take the the laundry? Tyrant, would you go get the trash and take it out? I mean, I'm hoping that's this guy's nickname. Hey, Tyrant, come on over. Let's go to the hall. But he goes to the hall of Tyrant or tyrant, Tyrannus, and he begins to preach. Now, One of the Western manuscripts that we have of the, the New Testament, it's not well attested, but there are some manuscripts that have some information that, that seem to be right. It appears that the people of Ephesus, it was a party town. And they would party until all hours of the night. So what they did in Ephesus, they would get up, sometimes they would stay up, At 7 o'clock, they would go to work, and they would work till 11 a.m., and the Western manuscript says that Paul began to teach at 11 a.m. during the siesta time because they were all, most of the people who had partied all night were then sleeping from 11 uh, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. They were sleeping, and some of you are going, well, that's a good thing. I like that. That's nap. For five hours, they would take a siesta, and Paul would preach and would teach that five hours. It appears that Paul was working as a tent maker from 7 to 11, and then he would preach or teach for five hours. And for two years, he did this. I did a little math. Six days a week, five hours a day would be 3,120 hours. An incredible amount of teaching. That's why the church in Ephesus was known to be so well-versed in the Scriptures, I believe. And it says that all of the Greeks and all of the Jews began to grow up. It's no wonder so many people knew Christ. It's no wonder that so many people began to grow in their faith in Jesus Christ because they were inundated hours a day. What would happen if instead of spending four or five hours a day in front of the television, we were listening to four or five hours of, of good biblical teaching, if we would soak ourselves in to what God wants us to do with our life? What a difference that would make. But it's not a given that that will happen. Even though you know Jesus Christ, it's not a given that you will automatically grow up. And you say, Pastor, how do you know that? In the Old Testament, there's a story of Samuel. Samuel, his his mother, Hannah, wanted a child so bad, she came and prayed, and she promised the Lord that if she was given a child, she would give the child back. And that's what she did. And so he grew up in the home of Eli. And 1 Samuel 3.19 says, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. And what it appears from that text, it's not that Samuel didn't let any of the words fall, but the Lord didn't let the words fall out of Samuel's heart. But Samuel was there he was he was showed up but but even more than showing up he was growing up in christ and samuel became one of the most godly men in all of the old testament he has such a pivotal part in in saul and david and and so many of the the lives of the people in in the early kingdom stage samuel was indispensable because he was faithful to the lord and you say well yeah eli was a great teacher Uh, i don't know eli had two sons hophni and phinehas These were two of the worst guys who have ever been in the Old Testament. I mean, if you could be raunchy and wrong, they were. And and Samuel grew up in the same home as Hophni and Phinehas, but Samuel listened, and Samuel grew. And what I'm saying to you is that we need to believe in Christ, but we need to be willing to be teachable, to listen, and to be approachable, and so we'll grow in Jesus Christ. God's Spirit produces mature believers. And the second part is God's Spirit produces massive power. Massive power. Go back to to Acts chapter 19, verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Again, a very unusual word in the Greek. Luke loves to do that. He has a huge vocabulary. Extraordinary there literally means not ever repeated. One of a kind. Extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs, and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Has anybody ever heard of anything like this? You ever seen one of the TV evangelists say, "If you'll send twenty nine ninety five, I'll send you a holy hanky. Here's what's interesting: the Greek word for handkerchief there is cloth that mops up the sweat. We would call it a sweatband, a do-rag. It's something that he put on his head because he was dripping sweat. This is not a handkerchief like a white hanky you put in your pocket. This is some guy's sweaty rag that he's been wiping his face with. And the apron there is a leather apron that he uses in in the trade that that he's doing, the tent making. He's not in some frilly woman's apron that they're sending off. He's saying, these are the tools of the trade. Somebody comes by and they see that Paul has laid down a a, a rag that's soaked with sweat, and they they go and they touch someone and they're healed. Now get this, verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva... A Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, "Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you?" Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the, out of the house naked and bleeding. I love that story. That's got to be true. Nobody puts that in the Bible unless some guy who has, who's demon possessed, goes crazy, beats up seven priests, and rips their clothes off, and they leave the house bleeding and naked. Ought to make us a little careful about whose name we invoke. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power after all this had happened Paul decided to go to Jerusalem passing through Macedonia and Achaia after I've been there he said I must visit Rome also he sent two of his helpers Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer what do we have here it's massive power and the word there for power that's used when it talks about the power of the Holy Spirit, we know the dunamis, it's the dynamite, it's, it's the explosive power. But this is a, an even more powerful word, kratos. Kratos is, is a power that's a long-lasting power. It's something, that, an earthquake and all of the devastation that comes after that. It's that powerful. It's life-changing. It's earth-shattering. And what should we understand from this? I think, number one, ask Christ for healing. It it would be real tempting for me to minimize this passage because, again, it's been so abused. It's been so abused. F.F. Bruce, uh, John Stott, others have shown how badly it has been abused. But these were extraordinary, one-of-a-kind, unique miracles, not repeated again. And these miracles were to, to authenticate who Paul was. If you remember when we were in in Acts chapter 5, people were bringing people to to Peter, and if someone walked by and the shadow of the person fell on them, they were healed. And that authenticated who Peter was. This is authenticating that Paul really is God's man for for Asia and for Europe and the other places that he's going to be sent. It authenticated that, that he was who he said he was. Just as in Matthew chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, the woman who reaches out and touches the hem of the garment of Jesus, she said to herself, if, only I, if I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Jesus turned and saw her, take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. She'd suffered from this disease for years and years and years, she had bleeding that, could not, that would not stop. She'd spent all of her fortune, we're told in the New Testament, trying to find an answer. And one touch of the master's cloak was enough. And we need to understand God still has that kind of power. But you don't have to buy a hanky to get it. And God's not trying to authenticate a Paul or a Peter today. You can go directly to him. James 5.15 says, A prayer offered in faith has results. First John 5, 14 says, if you ask anything according to his will, he hears you. He will answer you according to God's will. And you have some that are trying to tap into that power like these seven sons of Sceva. Sceva. You see these se- seven sons and they come in. They've denied their part of verse 9 where it says that they didn't want to listen to Paul's teaching, but they wanted God's power. And we have people like that today. Don't be fooled by that, Folks. Come to the Lord. We have people in this church that are sitting here today because they prayed and asked God for healing and God healed them. And it wasn't big and it wasn't flashy and sometimes God used doctors and sometimes he used other means, but God healed them. Ask Christ for healing, for physical healing, for spiritual healing, for emotional healing, for healing from your past. God is a God of healing. And the second one is ask Christ for cleansing. Ask Christ for cleansing. Ephesus was the center of the occult. You, we need to understand what's going on here. This was, this was voodoo central. This was the, the magicians, the witches, the clairvoyants, and because of that, the criminals, the charlatans, those who would fake all of this stuff, and they were, they were doing massive business selling all of these, these scrolls that the people would buy, and they would, they would have these incantations in them. And it so impacted the community when Paul began to teach and they began began to come to Christ and they began to see God working in their life that they began to bring scrolls in, 50,000 drachmas. A drachma is a silver coin. And to the the best of our ability, we see that as one day's wage. 50,000 days wages. That's 136.9 years of wages that they burned up because God had changed their life. Four people's lifetime of work was burned up that day, what what they could earn in that lifetime in their society. Do we understand how massively God was cleansing them? God longs for us to ask him to cleanse our life. Every time I read through this, and, and I read through it again the other day, Matthew chapter 8, verse 2. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him, before Jesus, and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me. Is that what he says? No. Lord, if you're willing, you can take this leprosy away. Is that what he says? No. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can cleanse me. You can make me clean. And you say, well, Pastor, you don't understand because the whole thing with leprosy is that, that they had to come and they had to be clean before the, before the high priest, before they could go back to their home. No, I understand completely. The man, when he came into the presence of God, knew that he needed the healing of leprosy. But more, even more than that, I think he saw his heart. And he, just like Isaiah 6, when Isaiah comes before the Lord and he's, he's confronted with God Almighty, he says, Lord, I'm an unclean man. I, I, I dwell in the midst of unclean men, and, 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 and my lips are filthy. Who can stand before God? And God says, let me clean you up. Let me take those things from your life that need to be destroyed. Let me take those and purify your life. And when the new life in Jesus Christ begins to well up in us, when his Holy Spirit, like sap, begins to rise in our body, it pushes out that old stuff that we've clung to so carefully and we have spent so much on. As I was getting ready for this, I asked the Lord, what do you want to clean from my life? John Phillips again says, No greater comment could be made on the impact of Christianity than the way it cleaned up the moral and religious sewer of the ancient world. Folks, do we want to clean up America? Would we like to see America get back to the biblical values? It's not going to start with a politician. It's going to start when we ask the Lord to clean our lives, and it spreads like wildfire across this nation until people come and they literally dump the junk that they have in their life. God's Spirit produces massive power. And here's the last one. God's Spirit produces magnificent work, workmanship. We're going we're to close with this. God's Spirit produces magnificent workmanship. Look at verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. That, that's what they called Christianity. They didn't call it Christianity. They didn't call it, you know, this, this whole church thing. It was the way, following the way that Jesus had led. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Asia, the province of Asia was about a third of all of Asia Minor at that time. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Get that sentence again. This guy from his mouth said, Paul says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Again, it's a duh moment. No, they're not. Look at verse 27, there's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. The theater there was a huge, still is, it's a huge theater, seated 25,000 people built into the, the side of a mountain. They rushed into the theater. Verse 30, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, Sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Love that line. Verse 33 The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours Great is the Artemis of the Ephesians. I want to stop there for a minute. It goes on to say that a city clerk or the mayor of the town comes out and God uses this mayor to, to completely take care of this riot. Get again. These people shouted for two hours, 25,000 people, and the chant goes out. Can you imagine? Have you been to a football game where you shout for an hour and you come away your horse? But shouting nonstop for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I want to ask you I want you to ask two questions of yourself I want to ask two questions of you number one has God changed the way I give make it personal has God changed the way I give because this whole thing was about money this whole thing was about income this whole thing was about finances and I'd planned on this a long time before we talked about the money earlier in the service the local silversmiths uh, sold miniature silver, silver niches or, uh, or idols, and it was of the, the temple of Artemis, or some people call it the temple of Diana. And inside this temple was this grotesque image of a woman that was covered with breasts. It, 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 was, it, it was all a sign of fertility. It, it, was, it, it was, and there were prostitutes that went along with this, some historians believed that it was a meteorite that fell from heaven and it was either fashioned to look like that or they just somehow believed that it looked like that. And the the temple of Artemis was huge. It was 425 feet long, four times the length of what we have in here and twice as wide. It had 127 60-foot tall pillars and the ceiling was encrusted with gold and precious gems. I mean, there was not a square inch that was not just magnificent. They said when you looked up at it, if, if the light reflected somehow to the ceiling, that it would blind you. It was just absolutely gorgeous, this temple. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And they were making these little intricate, or, ornate idols. And the people, the, the more expensive they were, the you know, I mean, the more ornate, the more elaborate they were, the more expensive they were, and people would buy them. And then most of the people when they would go down to the temple to worship, they would use that To purchase a prostitute or they would use that to give to the temple and what was kind of an amazing thing is then they would take them and melt them down and do it again they would always melt them down because they they many times when people would buy them they would scratch their initial or their name in it when they gave it as a gift and and so it was just this cycle they kept using the silver and the and the silversmiths were getting filthy rich over this thing and the people were giving all of their money was bankrupting Ephesus and something happened. Because the word of the Lord came in and the people started giving a different way. They're so radical that Demetrius stirred up this riot. When's the last time something the Lord did change the way you give? When's the last time the Lord did something that changed your finances and the way you thought about money? Matthew 5.21 says, where, so, where, where your tre- treasure is, there your heart will be also. Later, when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and you remember we started out that that Apollos was going to Corinth, and, and Paul left there and went this way instead. But he writes to the church in Corinth that says, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And he's writing about a church that's, that's destitute. He's writing about a church that's in the middle of a, a horrible recession, a, a horrible famine, and yet these people know that Paul has needs as he's on the road, and they take this, this money and they send it with, with Timothy and Titus and others who come, and they make these offerings to him, and Paul's just blown away. And he says, do you understand it's not about how much you've been given, it's how much you share. It's not about how much you have, it's how much you give. Again, has God changed the way I give? Number two, has God changed the way I live? It's a a fair question because the Temple of Artemis, as this beautiful, just amazing building. And it was, it was situated in such a way that you couldn't go, come into Ephesus. Even this huge city with uh, 500,000 people, you couldn't come into the city without noticing it because they set it up where everybody could see it. And, and it was this magnificent structure. And people came from all over the world to view it. It was considered just this epitome of gorgeousness. And the people called it the poema. They called it poetry. Poetry. It's a Greek word that's used for the highest expression of creative ability. You know, we know the English language. The English language, prose is one thing, but poetry is elevated to a different, uh, to a different place. And whether you like poetry or not, I mean, we all had to go through school, and at some point you had to learn Shakespeare. You know, "Hark! what light from yonder window breaks, it's the east, and Juliet is the sun, arise, rise for sun and kill the envious moon who's already pale. And You don't, you don't understand. You, you learn parts of that, and you can't forget it. And that poetry, it's powerful. But they said this is beyond just the, the spoken poetry. This is, this is the craftsmanship where someone has created something so special. And they said that our poema raised our expectations in life. If you came to the temple, they would promise you that if you would buy a silver statue and give it to the temple, that it would raise your expectations and that you would get double the money back. It was the buy one, get two free. You ever heard any evangelists say stuff, seed, faith, junk, you know? Paul would write in Colossians 3.1, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And the very most elaborate of these little statues, the, the best of the best, when these artisans would make these, they were also sometimes referred to as the poema. Not only the temple itself, but the, the little statues, the replicas of the temple of, of Artemis with this grotesque uh, thing inside, the idol inside. They were considered the, the poema. And everyone in Ephesus knew this. And turn over with me to, uh, to Ephesians chapter 2. Because just a few years after this happens, with this huge riot and all of this that's going on, Paul writes to the church that's there in Ephesus, and, and he says, listen, do you remember that time? And he's, he's recalling for them, and we don't get it because of the language. But look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse eight. It says, it is by, for it is by grace you've been saved, it's through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. He says this is not about buying your way into heaven with Artemis. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, not by works, so that no one can boast. Because people would go around and say, I bought the poema. I, I, I gave the poema. I gave the highest expression of creativity to God. And then Paul writes this. We are God's And he uses the word poema. We are God's workmanship. The highest expression of God's creativity, and that word poema is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's of the creation before the fall of man. And God says, do you understand? Paul says, do you understand? We are God's highest expression of creativity. God has placed within us the power and the glory and the ability to do things that we could not possibly do. And when we look at us, we see these broken people, we see these, these bodies that are imperfect, and we see our acts that are so so far from what they need to be. And God looks down and he says, Those are my children. That's my family. Those are the ones that I died for. Those are the ones that I love. This is my poetry. We are God's poema, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And what Paul was saying is that when the sap begins to rise and it pushes on the leaves, the old will go away, and the life of Christ, his poetry, will one day come out shine. Would you pray with me? What an amazing God you are, Father. You gathered us here today just before Thanksgiving to understand again what a marvel you are. We're so far from your highest creation. Sin, those things that we've done wrong, all of those times that we have failed you, All of those things have marred us so badly. Oh, God, forgive us. Father, cleanse us. Father, heal us. Father, I want to be changed. I want to be transformed in my giving. Not just financially, but but in the way I give of my time, the way I give of my love, the way I give everything. I want to be transformed by your power welling up in me, by your spirit pushing that darkness, that deadness away. Father, I I want to be transformed in the way I live. I want to live like your poetry. I want to please you as your son. and I pray that for each person here today, Father, that they would be your sons and your daughters, finding your strength, finding your power to do the things that we cannot possibly do because you are God. Thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name.